Ladies and gentlemen, and everything in between, and some of what's outside. I'm Layman Pascal, out front, so you don't have to be. And normally, I'm doing this on behalf of myself, Bruce Alderman, and all the fans of the extended integral stage. But today, Bruce Alderman is here on planet Earth and can join me for the second episode of our new series on dreamers, dream worlds, and the dreaming arts. Hi, Bruce. Hey, Layman. Yeah, happy to have landed just recently. What is it that interests you about dreams? Because you were the prop for starting this dream series. Where does it stand in your uh, inner cosmology? (laughs) I think one of the things that has been coming up recently in some of our other talks, when we were talking about meditative experience and uh, just some of our own journey, I've noticed a number of the more significant dream experiences kept popping up in those conversations. So that together with my my own work environment, my, my boss at JFK University specializes in dream work and I'm always hearing about Daniel Delorier's and Fariba Bogzaran's work in that context. Uh, and I, I think also there's been a complaint in the integral community that we don't focus on the subtle realm enough, the subtle dimensions of spiritual practice. And, and there's a, it's a rich territory and there's a lot there. And we often kind of look aside or you know we, we bypass it to some degree. From very early on, I've had pretty intense uh, dreams, very, very complex, involved, sometimes seeming to take the whole night, <laughs> epic scale kind of dreams. And I don't have those as much as I used to, but that was a big part of my early life and it informed my writing and my art making and things like that. Uh, direct stories, you know, coming straight out of, of dreams and, and artwork coming out of dreams. And initially more focused on just the, the, the spectacle of it, but gradually becoming attuned to the meanings and to the spiritual implications. And uh, as we talked in some past uh, episodes, I think in our talk with Rick Rapetti, some of the more initiatory and and, uh, mystical types of dreams really kind of helped move me along on my own path. So I just thought it would be interesting to go into this territory and explore it. And one of the features of my own practice life has been intensive involvement for several years in dream and sleep yoga. And I lived at a Tibetan Lama's house and studied under him how to do those practices pretty intensely uh, and and really was really deeply engaged with them for a while. So again, I think those were formative in my overall thinking and and, and being and, and approach. Yeah, I'd like to zero in on some of that dream yoga stuff, but let's start with uh, what's what's an early dream you remember in your life? Like one of the first dreams where you thought, oh, this is worth paying attention to. I'm not just, you know, it's not just my dreams. There's something I really want to explore here. It's something meaningful in this zone. There was one that was actually a nightmare that really disturbed me. It actually frightened me more than I thought it was possible to be frightened. And so it actually deeply disturbed me, but it opened me up to the fact that there are the dimensions, there are dimensions of the psyche that, you know, were were unglimpsed by me at the time, but that I, I saw some insight into shadow, 
into uh, into the creative scope of of the mind, uh, and it, I, I really dwelled on it a long time because of the the, the fear that it it put in me, um, and it there was a something about it around the corruption of innocence that really disturbed my psyche at the time, and it involved seeing encountering in several different locations and actually i had two or three versions of the dream over uh, a month period so again it felt like because it continued almost like chapters or almost like different scenes from a movie but with the same characters the same mood there was something in it that really felt that this was coming from a deep place and and carrying something significant for me. And it just got me into really thinking about dreams in a different way. I'd had some fantastic dreams leaping from roof to roof, you know, and shooting lasers at people out of my hands, you know, this kind of stuff. But this other one was much more psychologically dark and deep, and it, it really shook me. There were scenes of a, a, a young girl who had been just completely hollowed out on the inside and turned into uh, a vehicle for evil. And I encountered her in different places. She told me my mother and my sister were going to die. She showed up in, in very, very menacing ways and places. There were some very Lovecraftian scenes of a Gothic house and a dog that rushed to the gate and it had human eyes, you know, so there were just a lot of different dimensions to it that shook me um, and and really made me think about what my own drives and impulses and fears were and, and what is the power of the mind to instruct us in ways well beyond the capacities it seemed of what the ego itself could put together. You're, this story is bringing up an early adolescent dream for me which was I'd gone through a, a, like you were talking about, a series of dark dreams on the same theme and with some of the same characters. And I was encountering a Lord of the Underworld figure. That's how I thought of him. Uh, long, scraggly hair. And was I would be petrified. It was difficult to even move when I encountered this figure. And so in the dream, I'm in his lair and I'm moving around the edges of the walls and he's down in the center. He's got some henchmen. They begin to shoot at me, but the bullets move really slowly. I can get out of the way. I get down to the bottom floor and one of his, this creature that works for him, which is somehow death, takes Sherlock Holmes, who was there for some reason, and the wall opens and he slides off at the wrong angle and he pulls Sherlock Holmes into the slit in the wall and I'm terrified. And so I'm so terrified I wake up, but I'm still frozen. It was one of the few times I had this, like, you know, you wake up and you're terrified. But then on the wall was the face of this creature, this dark, disturbed face of this death creature. And I just lay there awake, frozen, looking at this thing on the wall for I don't know how long. And when it wore off and I got up in the morning, I thought to myself, well, this represents my anxiety about rational control symbolized by Sherlock Holmes. That makes complete sense. And I went into the kitchen for breakfast and my mother said, Jeremy Brett just died. She'd heard on the radio, he played Sherlock Holmes in the classic 80s BBC one that she and I would watch. 
And so like that whole thing was such a strange tangle. I thought I got to look into this a little bit more. Yeah, it, it really, there's a, there's a blurring of the boundaries between worlds in a way that it, it's uncanny. I'm, I'm also thinking about a similar experience where I, I really did feel that this girl was an underworld figure. Uh, there's even some satanic imagery and things that came up in the dream at the time. But at one point, it was during the same period, I remembered kind of like moving towards this, this, this dark realm, this underground, you know, deep place. And these faces were coming at me out of that. And one of the faces was really frightening and it woke me, but I also woke into the sleep paralysis and I could actually just see in the air above me, the faces were still coming mm. and I was now awake and I was in the room and I could, you know, feel and see things around me, though I couldn't move, but in the, the, the projection was still going on and I could still see these faces just coming at me. And I remember at the time thinking, I need to protect myself. Uh, and I, I started just putting like a, a feeling, a, a, a wave of protection from head to toe that I felt like waves of chills just running from top to bottom. But it was like a purification movement. And I'm just like, no, <laughs> you're not coming in, that kind of thing. And of course, on waking later, I also thought about one, influences from movies, two, different kinds of psychological explanations for it. And I tried to rationalize about it a bit. But the next night, I also had a dream where I was just feeling this menacing presence. And it wasn't a very clear dream, but it was a menacing presence that really disturbed me. And when I woke up, I don't know if I've told you this one before, but this is the one of those synchronistic kind of blurring the lines uh, between dream and, and reality, I looked on the window of my bedroom, and, which was frosty. It was in uh, winter time or, or approaching winter. And drawn in the frost was a very clear image that looked to me exactly like a hamster on its back with a knife through its stomach. It just like was very, very clear with the head and the tail, little nubby tail and legs and the little sword right through it. And the first thought in my mind was, uh, Rhea, my my hamster, she's dead. So I ran to the other end of the room, not the other end of the room, the other end of the house, out into our playroom on the other end of the house. And she was dead on her back in the cage. And so that really disturbed me and freaked me out a little bit. I, obviously, I still remember it. So. Rhea as in the Greek word for flow? Yes. Okay, this is great. Here's a pitch. That's the integral stage logo. It's the dead hamster, and it says Ray. <laughs> I like it. Nice. Right. Yeah. Company. <laughs> okay. Uh, how did you get involved in dream yoga, and what was the what were the nature of the practices that you went through? I I've been to. Nepal. I'd been living in India, and I'd been to Nepal on a few. What's that? When was this? 
Uh, this was probably in the early 90s. Yeah, I'd been living in India and working at the Krishnamurti School, which I've talked about here before. And I would take occasional trips up to Nepal and visit Tibetan monasteries up there. And I had met one teacher up there and asked if I could move there when I finished my uh, assignment there at the Krishnamurti School. And he said, you'd be welcome here as a student, but first go back to the United States and finish your any karma that your parents have that they would want you to be done with? Is there anything that they want you to be done with? I said, well, I haven't finished college. And he said, go back and finish college. Then you can come back here and stay as long as you want. But I don't want you to be here and have unfinished family things at home. Um, so I, I went back and I went back to Texas and I thought I've lost this whole world, this monastery on the side of the hill in the Kathmandu Valley. And, you know, it was an idyllic place to be practicing Tantra and Dzogchen and things like that. And now I'm back in Texas. You know? I was like, I'm, I'm in a spiritually bankrupt zone. What am I going to do? Uh, but within two weeks of being back at school, I noticed a flyer on like a Whole Foods, you know, bulletin board or something. And it was for a dream yoga retreat with a Tibetan teacher. And I thought, I'll go to that, see what that is. And I went to the retreat and I really liked the set of teachings and I liked the teacher. And it turned out, this teacher was raised as a son by the one who had sent me back home. So I thought, okay, that's a fortuitous connection. Um, and I maintained, you know, my connection with him and, and kept studying. So I, that was really my first introduction to anything about dream yoga at all. I hadn't heard of it before as a practice. I knew different tantric practices and um, I, I've been reading Dzogchen books and things like that, but I, I hadn't gone into that area before. So because of my past interest in dreams uh, and just some of the compelling way that he presented it, I decided to to take it up and, and do it for a while. So uh, I, I did it for the purposes of the retreat that was in Texas. Then later, I got offered an opportunity to come out to Virginia, where he actually lived and help him with a Buddhist newsletter, a, a bonpo and Buddhist newsletter, and also with the launching of a new retreat center that he was about to do. So I came out there and I basically moved into the basement of, of one of his houses there uh, that was serving as, the upstairs was serving mostly as the office for the Ligmincha Institute. And then I lived in the basement and worked on the newsletter and, and continued with that kind of practice. And what were the nature of the practices, if they aren't too secret to share with us? Yeah, too secret, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what really struck me initially was the complexity and the depth of the teachings all around dream and how they related to ordinary life and how they related to ordinary habits of sleep. It just was... Uh, a whole world opened up. You know, I knew about dream interpretation and different things like that, but this was a, to me, a, another level of approaching working with dreams. And a couple things struck me. One, he commented, you know, if you live to be 90, 30 of those years, you're going to have been sleeping. You're going to have, you know, how much of your practice life are you throwing away if 30 years of your life basically is just dropping into unconsciousness. 
without any kind of intention, without any kind of engagement. Uh, and that really, there's a whole field of opportunity to work in different ways in sleep and in dreams that serve your overall growth, your overall integration, your overall transformation. And so fold that into your practice routine, really approach sleep as a sacred passage, approach dreaming as a sacred opportunity, and, and see what riches are within those realms uh, that can that can lead to wisdom and that can lead to more flexibility and thinking and being more integration um, and ultimately more insight because there are things that you can do in a lucid dream for instance that you can maybe do a little bit easier than you would in waking life when there's uh, less distractions and things like that so that was one thing that struck me was just that overall pitch that yeah yeah that's right there is a huge part of our lives that's you know, squandered if we don't really approach it with intention in any way. And the other thing was just pointing out how in our daily life, especially in a, in a life without practice, uh, we usually are carried from reaction to reaction and just response to response. And we maybe make some plans, but then life throws things at us. And, you know, we just, we're in that that mode of cause and effect reactivity. And when we go to sleep, we usually just turn off. We just lay down, put our head on, we just turn off. And the idea in dream yoga is wherever you've been most triggered, wherever you've been most challenged and charged and, and, and full of resistance and different kind of things that might be going on or fixated in different ways during the day, if you just fall asleep without intention, basically you're just inviting the mind to be pulled into that whirlpool and have dream material generated from it. That, that there's no intentionality, there's no control over what's happening. And so it's like a, a, a riderless carriage that you just toss it into the street and say, go wherever you want, you know? And, and usually that's not a really good recipe for a productive night. And so there's a very intentional way that you approach sleep. And if you're doing regular dream yoga practice, you have several watches of the night in which you will approach falling asleep in different positions with different kinds of visualization, with different kinds of breathing patterns in order to control what types of dreams come up first and you can you can graduate that by by basically uh yeah modulating the energy flow in the body and focusing on different areas of the body you can exert not absolute control but some influence over the directionality of what happens during sleep and make it a much more productive intentional field of, of practice and experience It occurs to me that I've heard maybe four different um, spiritually or psychologically themed approaches to using dreams. One approach is um, orient yourself while you're awake and before bed and prepare yourself for a certain approach to dreams. And then in the morning, recollect some information that came back in that kind of a dialogue with it. 
Second approach seems to be to uh, attempt to create, maintain some modification of consciousness while one is asleep, whether it's you know, maintaining unbroken witness awareness or becoming lucid within the dream or using it as a gateway to out-of-body experiences or something like that, operating within the dream state. Third one would be it actually knows what it's doing and anything you try to do is an interference in, in what the dream system is trying to accomplish for you. So you shouldn't try to exert control. And the fourth one is Dreams themselves are problematic, right? That they are um, detritus in the same way that thoughts are detritus of waking consciousness. That really you'd like to have a clear, open consciousness and a deep, dreamless sleep. And if your system is being uh, obsessed by this, this form of maya and the attempt to interpret it and engage with it, you're actually not functioning sanely and clearly in an awakened way, and you're not giving your body the deep rest it needs. So... What do you make of those four? Am I leaving anything out? How would you adjudicate between them? What's your take on that uh, set? <laughs> when I mentioned that I found the you know, Tibetan approach, especially this Bon Tibetan version of dream yoga and sleep yoga, it dates back to the six yogas of Naropa. And you know there are Buddhist versions of it, but there are Bon versions as well. And when I mentioned that I found it very comprehensive, one reason is because it encompasses all of those things. It, it engages with all of those attitudes and, and orientations and, and works with all of them. And so it doesn't set up a dichotomy between dreams bad and sleep good, but it does recognize that too much focus on dreams will distract you from a different and deeper kind of both integration and nourishment and insight that's possible in deep sleep. That's why there's dream yoga and sleep yoga, and they both are used. In fact, for Dzogchen, sleep yoga is preferred, uh, but dream yoga is fine. <laughs> and there are ways to have dreams that are not just basically this, the karmic recycling. Uh, so I'll kind of talk about that in a little bit. But yeah, there are a lot of different approaches. I, I first got a maybe introduced to experimenting with initiating a dream kind of practice through Carlos Castaneda's work, uh, you know, Don Juan's teachings. And there, the injunction is to, throughout the day, remember your hands, and, you know, bring your hands to mind. And then during the dream, if you remember your hands, that can be a trigger to become lucid. So you basically set up a prompt that can help you remember to become lucid in the sleep and then you can begin to exercise and develop your dream body and all of that kind of stuff that's in Costa sure. Rica. If I remember that one correctly, and I read it as a kid, so I'm not sure if I do, uh, you're checking to see whether you're in a dream right now when you see your hands. Yes. And there's a higher likelihood that in your dream, you'll remember to do that same thing and discover that you are. Right, right, exactly. And then, yeah, once you've basically done that and checked your hands, then you can practice moving your attention out into the larger setting of wherever you are. And usually it takes some practice because when you first do that and you see your hands, then, oh, I'm dreaming. And then you wake up because it's too much of a, 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 a charge of, of uh, you know, energized awareness that, that dissipates the dream. But if you can do it with a light touch, then you can, you can look up and you can engage with wherever you are. Uh, so 
in the approach within the uh, practice system that I learned, one of the things that you do, there are a number of practices that you do that are preliminary that you do throughout the day. And you talked about some of that, and that's pretty much exactly what you do. Throughout the day in this approach, you would just say, this is a dream. You don't focus on your hands. You focus on whatever you're seeing, just name it as a dream. And it's not in a dismissive way. It's to try to phenomenologically experience it as a dream. And when you do that, it actually intensifies the colors and the sounds and it actually magnifies really the clarity and the vibrancy of the experience. So it's it's not a dismissive, oh, this is just a dream, it's not real. It's this is dreaming. I'm dreaming this. This is a this is an active, creative outpouring of of, of mental creation, <laughs> right? But it, again, it's not also saying that this is all just coming from my mind. It, it, it's not getting into those philosophical uh, solipsistic kind of things. It's just trying to get you to feel that phenomenology. This is and, excellent because I think there's a really important point here with two sides, which is what do we gain from perceiving the waking state as a uh, psychophysical dreamlike realm, but also what are the risks of perceiving the waking state as a dream? Exactly, right. Yeah, I think there can be something dismissive about it and you know, spiritually bypassing about it, where you can just write off this world as a dream and then not taking any of your relationships or commitments or obligations or experiences, you know, seriously in a way that that merits actual care for those things. Um, of course, there's a there's a kind of detachment that, you know, Buddhist and bone practices do try to cultivate, but there's a way to go too far in that direction where it becomes dissociating or dismissive. Um, and so that would be a misuse of that practice. The benefits really are to one, it, it increases the vibrancy of the experience. Two, it's a constant reminder that inactively we are participating in the shape and flavor of this experience. We are not solely controlling it. Um, just like even in a lucid dream, we don't solely control whatever's happening we're given an environment and then we can creatively engage with it. It's not, you know, a sense of us being absolute godlike creators of every detail. We're more in a participatory relationship with it. Um, and there can be greater depth of, of uh, participation with it. Uh, so again, it brings it more into vibrancy and, and, and into a, uh, uh, I think it just, I feel the clarity light up. I used to, when I was doing this back then and going to my college campus, I'd walk around on college campus, this is a dream. And I just remember everything just standing out to me so vividly and beautifully. Uh, and then that can become a reminder for, uh, you know, what you will, you know, basically to, to say this is a dream in a dream and then engage in the same ways. So you do that, and at the end of the day, you would go to sleep. Before you go to sleep, you would reflect on the events of the day and reflect on them as if they were memories of a dream, and then set the intention to have a productive dream period and, if possible, to become lucid. Lucidity is not the only goal of this, but 
that's one of the goals. So you would you'd put that out there as and, and really set that intention. Then there are, I'll talk about later, there are some very deliberate practices that you do to actually transition into sleep. Uh, but these are kind of preparatory things that you do. The concern around whether the dream should be left alone and uh, to do its own thing and it, it knows what it's doing. Uh, a couple interesting ways to look at that. Uh, one, you know, in this tradition, there is the recognition that dreams do serve certain kinds of psychological functions that are useful, but they also recognize that our dreams are constructions, they're mental constructions, they're, they're empty in a sense. And because of that, there's nothing sacred about them in terms of like, oh, you can't violate the shape of that. One of the ways that they look at it is in, in waking life, we regard it as a sign of maturity to be able to make our emotional states into object and to basically interact with them and control them and direct them in ways that are in accord with our highest, um, you know, and in, in most integrated ways of being. Uh, not to let ourselves just be subject to whatever is emotionally coming up or coming up in terms of our thoughts, because that's the authentic thing and it knows what it's doing. And I got to just follow whatever react. No, you want to practice some intentionality and some clarity and, and learning how to make your states into object so that actually you can more intimately engage with them, but also not be just subject to them um, so that you're you're carried around by them. And so the idea here is the same as in the dream yogi approaches dreams in the same way. You can let dreams just come up and do whatever they're doing and then retrospectively get something from it. But that's like letting yourself have this intense emotional reaction and then going back later to look at it. Okay, there's some value in that, but it's not the full value that you could get if you were more intentional and more aware of your own, you know, your own cognitive productions. So, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that kind of framing. No, I think the... Um... The value seems to come from some kind of interaction between more executive consciousness and these phenomena. And that interaction could be in the moment, or it could be in the moment of reflection, or it could be in the moment of intentional participation, right? Because someone could make an argument and say, everything you've described is, is a little bit too masculinist, mm -hmm. right? That actually we should voluntarily submit ourselves to these processes. But then in the gesture of that voluntary submission, the consciousness and intention has been brought in again. So in all three of these, the, the value and the meaning comes from that conjunction between them. Right. I think I, one thing is the, I think we haven't touched on yet is the ontological question, because everything you've been saying is equally true. If these are a phenomenon of the nervous system, or if it's an actual realm of its own, where do you stand on? It's an epiphenomenon versus it's a domain. I'm not sure myself. Uh, I feel like there is something constructed to it that there, that our our human activity has constructed this. Not entirely, but I feel that 
I don't feel it's entirely the individual's production. I'll put it that way. I feel like sometimes in dreams we encounter something bigger than seemingly the ego or the personal timeline history could know. And yet it's available to you through the dream. So I do feel that there is a quasi autonomy to it as a realm, uh, but I don't think we'll ever have a physics experiment that demonstrates it out there. I think it is in some ways contingent on other ordinary physical processes for its manifestation, but in its manifestation, in its emergence, there's a, there's a quasi autonomy to it. There's a, a second way of asking this question, which pertains to the general concept of the subtle, which is, are there entities that exist only in that place? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I've definitely had experiences that make me feel like I'm, I'm interacting with something that seems to be very independently intelligent and alien to me but I don't know the potential of our own mind to do those things. Uh, so I would say it's within the realm of experience, available experience to encounter things as if they are. And there may be some fruit into just going on and engaging with them in that way. I mean, that was part of what Jung experimented with, you know, with Philemon and others where Yes, maybe they're a production, but to grant them a certain kind of autonomy and and then to interact with that can give you maybe more interrelationally into it and subject yourself, make yourself vulnerable to a relationship with it that the ego is not controlling. Um, there is something valuable that can happen through that process. And in my opinion, it you know it, it kind of interestingly, parallels some aspects of the tantric practice and the uh, dream yoga and other kinds of practices where you do work with yidams, you do create these entities, you visualize or call forth these entities, uh, but the better you get at doing that, the more autonomy they show up with. And it's more like you're entering into a relationship with them instead of just having this be, you know, a, a picture I drew. Um, there's, they, there's a, you know, you, you kind of like build the vehicle for it and then they're filled and <laughs> they, they act back. Of course, there's the dissolution at the end of the practice where you recognize it as the nature of your own mind, but it's not necessarily the nature of your own ego. When I mentioned those four approaches, you described a way in which um, certain traditions of dream and sleep yoga in Asia have incorporated all those different aspects already, which is an attractive, more integrated approach. And it leads to the question of, from your point of view today, what would be an adequately integral approach to dreams? What would justify calling an approach an integral approach to dreams? I do find what's going on within the, the you know, the Bun tradition that I studied with fairly integral already in terms of its encompassing of stages of development as well as the multiple 
you know, you could say quadrant dimensions of it and, and, and encompassing all of those different types that we talked about, the different approaches to dreams. So there is a degree of integrality that's already there in that system. And so I would not want to say, I think it would be disrespectful um, to the depth that's really already there, um, including pretty sophisticated understanding of psychological mechanisms and understanding about how conditioning and other kinds of factors can cause certain kinds of experience. So it's not just a naive beholding of, of thought productions as if, you know, oh, I'm seeing the other world, you know, the way that, you know, Western psychologists have been somewhat dismissive of the more mystically inclined. There's a lot of sophistication that they do recognize the constructedness and, and the participation, um, the enactedness of a lot of those phenomena. So I would say one that is now integral for our time, I would say it's already integral, but integral for our time would be one that engages much more with neuroscience, one that engages much more with uh, what technology can both teach us about what's happening, but also afford in terms of maybe enabling the ease of certain parts of the process to uh, yeah, unfold uh, in, in, in a maybe more expedited way, something like that. I feel like there are dimensions of the psyche that through psychoanalysis and through, uh, you know, feminist and postmodern different kinds of insights, maybe there are dimensions of that that we could explore more intentionally with dreams, um, with, with the dream work. You know, there's, there's not a lot of what you would call straight shadow work um, in the dream yoga that I have experienced um, in terms of like a psychoanalytic approach to it. I think there is a way of working with the different dimensions and trying to integrate them that approaches it, uh, but there could be insights that we bring in. So I, I would just say, yeah, um, really being intentional about multidimensionality of the practice and and trying to uh, post-metaphysically frame it and hold it so that we can be attentive to and work productively with kind of the leading edge of our insights in science and um, and in psychology. On the uh, Combs-Wilbur matrix, <laughs> there's this intersection between states, including the subtle state domain, and these, this notion of emergent developmental layers of complexity and integration. Is it useful to think of dreams in reference to developmental stages, or does that really give us nothing extra? I recall some of Mark Edwards' critiques of Wilbur around some of the ways that Wilbur seems to be interpreting the causal and the subtle and things like that. And uh, we could maybe get into that, but for me, I think dreams can show uh, a range of development within them, you know, in terms of the content. And they give you actually a 
a field in which maybe parts of yourself from earlier stages of development can come forward in a full way and present themselves so that you can get insight into them and into the dynamics of, of that, you know, uh, energetic constellation, that psychoenergetic constellation. Uh, so I, I think a developmental approach can give insight into possibly the different kinds of content um, that become available in a dream um, and, and help you understand maybe what kind of developmental dynamics are playing out within a dream scenario. But I wouldn't want to, I, don't, I didn't know if you were asking and I wouldn't want to put dreams themselves at a particular developmental level. I feel that they're, yeah, they encompass, you know, most of the, the stages of development. I know that there are spiritual teachers. Uh, Krishnamurti used to be one. And there are others who sometimes say, when you reach a certain level of development, you just stop dreaming. Uh, you don't have a need for that to come up anymore. Um, and within, within Buddhism uh, or the Bon tradition, there's some justification for that in that dreams are imagined to be the most often the recycling of karmic imprints of past conditionings. And so, you know, they this tradition will see different types of dreams. There's the samsaric dream, and then there's a the dream of clarity, and then there's a the clear light dream. And a samsaric dream is the most common dream. That's the ordinary dream. It's basically whatever karmic imprints that you've laid down, whatever uh, things have crystallized in you um, out of your emotional reactions and experiences, those things recycle. And they just come up and they replay themselves. And so a lot of you know, psychological dream work is working with samsaric ordinary dreams, analyzing and looking at and trying to bring some integration to um, and, some, and draw some insight from uh, the different kinds of materials that come up that are sediments of our development, right? A dream of clarity is a dream that comes, they would say, from uh, transpersonal karmic traces, where you might have had different kinds of spiritual experiences. Uh, you might have had encounters with teachers or beings who gave some kind of transmission, different kinds of things that can bring forth a dream in you that doesn't just play over again, past karmic emotional reactive traces, but it still is a recording of, of, you could say higher stage, but not fully liberated yet, um, types of experience. And so that's a dream of clarity and they can be lucid or non-lucid and a samsara dream can be lucid or non-lucid. You can have lucid, lucidity doesn't make a difference there necessarily. A clear light dream is a dream in which you do not end up identifying with a dream subject set against an object, but that non-dual rigpa, non-dual awareness is present so that there is the arising of different kinds of forms and sounds and images, but it's all held and processed through stable, clear, 
non-dual awareness. And there's a, you know, if you can, if you can experience phenomena and, you know, there's a often felt to be an either or relationship between, you know, non-dual awareness and something like thoughts. And, and you can encounter some forms of spiritual teaching that would say when thought is present, the, that awareness is not. Um, and so therefore you're looking for the gaps between thoughts or you're looking for thoughtlessness. And uh, from the Dzogchen and from the Tibetan you know, point of view in which I have studied, that's actually not really true. It's just that it's easier to feel one or the other, um, but that they're actually, they actually can coincide and that there's that, that thoughts in no way really obscure uh, non-dual awareness. That's the, that's the, whole lot teaching around one taste everything has that one taste everything can arise within that and so it's still possible to experience forms and images and sounds and even unfolding narratives within a non-dual awareness just like you can do in the waking life you can have conversations from that state so the idea here is the more that you do that in the day the more that you practice and you're able to kind of take little sips of rigpa <laughs> Um, and 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 feel it even in the midst of ordinary unfolding thinking and cognition, the more likely that's going to happen in dream. And there's a there is a metaphysics behind this that I would say maybe if we're thinking about a, a an integral modern Western approach to dream work, if we wanted to take whatever we could learn from these past systems and still work with it. We have, to, we have to come to grips, I think, with one of the underlying metaphysics of this kind of practice, at least within the, the Bun and, and Buddhist traditions, which is that these practices are basically preparation for death, and that very similar things happen when we die. And so the better that we get at making this transition, uh, the dissolution of the subject into the sleep and then the the you know, uh, deep dreamless period, and then the arising of images, those those correspond to the different bardos after death, you know, and it's from this tradition, it's, it's more difficult to uh, become lucid, become aware in the, you know, uh, the, the pure, uh, the, the base, the pure bardo, the one that first unfolds on death, after the after the first bardo um, opens on on death, um, it's just a blankness. It's just a it's just an emptiness, and then after that, karmic visions start to arise, and it's difficult to recognize clarity of presence within that initial gap. If you can, the metaphysical belief is you you are liberated at that point. You don't get carried along by by karmic traces into just more trails of conditioning, um, conditioned becoming. You you are liberated at that point. Whereas if you don't do that, you have another opportunity as visions arise to become aware um, within within that, become lucid within that, and then again have a chance for liberation. If you don't do either. Basically, it's just like falling asleep and, and wherever the mind goes, 
that's just wherever it's going to go. And it's just going to follow the strongest lines of conditioning. So that's kind of the background metaphysic there. It's up to us now, I think, in this time to think about how seriously we take that. I think we do have dream studies that, I mean, not dream studies, studies about death that show that people who are clinically dead, there's a period of, of fallow time. And then there seems to be, for a little while, an arising of imagery in the clinically dead person. Um, it still could be a, you know, a biological thing going on. But we do see that the pattern that the Tibetans have described is a pattern that happens after death. We just, yeah, um, it, it's on us whether we're going to interpret it exactly in the metaphysical way that they do. Yeah, I'm very uh, intrigued by this sort of this version of Buddhist metaphysics, where essentially the dream world is maybe more primary than the physical world. That's where you come from. And you're lucky if you get a human birth so that you have one of these units that can filter out most of the dream world experience for you and give you an opportunity to do some mind strength training and personal development in terms of virtue and self-release. So that when this thing breaks down and you end up back there again, you have some room to be a more responsible participant one way or another. Otherwise, when you end up back there, it's going to be like random dreaming or a random drug trip where you may you might well end up in a hell world for what seems like a subjective infinity. So it would be nice to go back there with some new ability to navigate. Uh, right. So that's that's very enticing vision. It seems very practical to work in that way. As for the ontology, you know, partly I want to say, well, we just don't know. Maybe there's some more science can tell us, but it may be that there's a limit about what science can tell us and that the nature of ontology itself is always going to run up against that, um, the need to allow ourselves to just not know. Right, right. Yeah, and that's what I find, you know, is it, the pragmatist side of a post-metaphysical approach, which is just what works. And I do find that approach towards dreaming is very practical and useful. Um, towards the productions of, of of the night, right? And so whether it carries beyond this life, I don't know. Uh, but it's nice to be prepared if it works. It's Pascal's wager kind of thing, I guess, you know. Um, it's good to it's good to be prepared if it if it actually happens that way. I think even if there is nothing going on after the the death, having these skills while you're dying and those processes are going on could also make, to me, make just the dying process better if you're able to you know, have that kind of influence and, and awareness, it, even if it doesn't go on metaphysically to any other incarnations or anything like that. I think it's I likely mean, to make the living process better as well. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I mean. Is like practically it makes the living process better, but at the time of dying, even if there's no other world, I think it can even make that transition better. Yeah, that's a smart Pascal's wager in that sense. Might help you in an ontological afterlife, could likely help you passing into the death, and also definitely makes your life here better in terms of its richness and your metacognitive capacity to uh, modify yourself in constructive ways. 
Right, right. One of the things, you know, our ancestors didn't know as much as we do, it seems, about the inner structures and functions of the brain. And sometimes when I dream, I, even in the dream, I'm wondering whether I'm seeing brain structures through a virtual filter from the inside. The way you might see, like if you were projecting a movie on a screen and that screen was kind of wrapped around a rock, right? You'd see the stuff, but you'd be like, you could kind of see the shape of the rock. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so sometimes I think, was that my pineal gland? <laughs> I think I've seen that shape. Maybe if I'm just wandering around the corridors inside the brain, looking at a VR overlay on it. Uh, I wonder whether our ancestors had that notion or whether it's an emerging contemporary approach to dream work. It's a great question. I haven't had any experiences of seeing the pineal gland, but I have had this experience of feeling like I'm between the two halves of the brain. It feels like this. In fact, that's kind of one of the reasons why there's that image that I sometimes show on the background of some of our videos and, uh, is that those two those two things coming together? There was some intense experience um, in in some dreams previously of experiencing myself between you could say the two halves of the brain in this kind of like charged canyon, <laughs> right? Um, I these that's how I emerged from that experience, feeling as if wow that was like I'm in between the halves of my brain, and I, I do remember doing during an intensive vipassana retreat you know we're supposedly we don't have nerves in our organs in order to be able to feel them but there was a period where i took in a breath that i actually felt the breath totally illuminate um, the esophagus and the stomach and i could feel them in their full shape their contours their movement it was like i became immediately viscerally aware of those organ structures as well as I could propriocept the feeling and the movement of my arm or my hand. And so I don't know how that's possible if there's not supposed to be the nerve structures there, but it was so clear and, and, and so visceral and biological. It didn't feel like a visualization of anything. It was just, oh, okay, there it is. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the full shape of that. Interweaving with the biological, I think, is a fascinating open-ended area of study because uh, once you posit the idea that you have an organ called the brain that could, say, produce dreams, then it makes sense to ask, well, what about the other organs? Can they also do this? Do they have some range of mobility similar to what we think of as the frequency spectrum in the brain? Do my kidneys dream? You know, like, and when I go into my dreams, are there tributary dreamings from the organs that make up my physical body? I don't think uh, I don't think we have the answer. I don't think many people have begun to even ask a question like that yet. Yeah, I, I think the places that I know that have ventured in that direction, you know, one I've heard some thoughts within Taoist medicine um, along those lines, but within the process approach of Arnie Mendel. Um, he has this notion called the dream body. And his idea is that the, throughout the day, the body is dreaming all the time. And that there are ways to, if you can look at how the body is positioning itself, different kinds of movements happening, different kinds of ways you're holding tension, 
that you can practice switching sensory channels and you can do different kinds of things to interact with the body that actually calls forth the latent dream that's there. And that when we sleep, we become aware of a slice of what's going on. But actually there's dreaming activity that, that pops up throughout the day and typically manifests for us in physical um, symptoms, somatic symptoms and, and postures and, and patterns. Uh, but with the right approach can be tapped and drawn out uh, and really fully unfolded into surprising rich dream contents. You could say, okay, the dreaming really is happening or just that interaction calls forth a dream likeness um, associatively and other things, you know, so it's hard to say what's really the case, um, but he believes he's discovered that. What's your experience of talking about dreams? You know, does a conversation like this cause anything beneficial to happen for us? Because there's a set of sensations in my body, which I'm suspicious of, but it feels like, oh, in, in getting into a valuable dream discussion, sometimes it feels like you're receiving a special kind of nutrient that you might not otherwise be getting, right? And maybe that's part of what we're doing in trying to have some more subtly oriented series on the channel. But I'm curious about whether taking dreams seriously and discussing dreams does anything for you personally. I was noticing a few minutes ago, a little buzz in my body. And it could be just because I'm always nervous in front of a camera, but I actually was feeling, uh, I hadn't been thinking about it in terms of uh, a nutrient, but a mood. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of mood that's emergent. And I think it's, it, for me, there's an increasing appreciation for the possibility of this kind of work that in, in the ordinary press of my life, can sometimes fade into the background. So I've actually liked getting back into this series um, to think about this talk with you uh, because it's it's kind of stirring and awakening um, some different pieces in me that were nourished uh, by the overall dream experience. And the way that the dream uh, and sleep yoga and dream yoga are approached there's actually a very feminine nurturing quality around how that they're done, how they're, uh, yeah, enacted. So I'd like to say a little bit about that. Um, in terms of the actual setup for dreaming after you've done all the preparatory practices in the day, for dream yoga, the men will lie on the right side for the first watch of the night and women will lie on the left side for the first watch of the night. But as you do so, you, you imaginally transform your, your room into a sacred environment and you fill it with sleep dakinis, these you know enlightened female um, entities that represent different aspects of dreaming and dreaming potential. And they sit next to you, they watch over you. They're basically there as sacred guides to help you move through that transition into the other world. And you can think back, I think, to maybe old mystery schools and temples where there might have been priestesses who you know, guide people through 
a kind of process and that they support and create this nurturing environment. So that's what you do with this initial practice is you, you go to sleep in the presence of these, you know, radiant, enlightened female beings who are there to guide you through a passage. These doulas, you know, these midwives who are, who are there to take you into this next, this next realm. So that in itself is attractive just in terms of, you know, bringing back childhood kind of feelings and imaginings. But there's something really comforting that I found in going to sleep in that space, imagining myself surrounded by such beings. In sleep yoga, which we haven't talked about that much, but in sleep yoga, you you basically cultivate a relationship with one Dakini in particular, Salji Dudalma, and you visualize her at different periods throughout the day, just imagining her being present with you. But Salji Dudalma is um, she who clarifies beyond conception. That's what her name means, is she who clarifies beyond conception. And so one of the things that you would do approaching sleep yoga is to have a soft candle or a light on in the room to change the quality of the room. And Salji Dudalma is the clarity, the, the subtle, subtle clarity of awareness that's present in ordinary sleep. That's what her name means and that's what she invokes. So you have that subtle light on in the room as you sleep, go to sleep, and you imagine that that subtle light suffusing the room is actually her presence, her presence. So you're using the external stimulation to help you move towards the internal realization and, and, and contact with the subtle clarity that's present within thoughtless consciousness, right? So that it, it, it's a support. It's a support that you use and it, it creates a field for you that you, again, with her present to you and embracing you with the subtle light that fills the room, that's that kind of eases your passage into sleeping. And again, there are different visualizations and things that you do also that help you transition into sleep. So both the dreaming and um, the dream yoga and the sleep yoga have specific sets of visualizations that you do at different parts of the body, different breathing, different postures, things like that that will serve different purposes as you transition into different periods. One of the things with the dream yoga is that you start out with the neck because that's a generally neutral area, but it also, the visualization will locate you in the central channel. That's the idea is to locate yourself within the center of the body uh, before dreaming happens within the neck center. And any dreams that are birthed from that position uh, imaginal position are more likely to be relatively neutral and easy to engage with. Um, then the next watch of the night, you do a visualization, white tigle at the third eye, that basically you merge with this white tigle at the third eye and go into sleep, and that is to increase clarity of your dreams. Then there's another watch of the night where you visualize a, a Tibetan seed syllable, a black. Tibetan seed syllable in the heart center and you merge with the blackness in the heart center. And that is basically to increase strength of presence, magnify the sense of presence after you've basically established balance and clarity. And then you magnify, you amplify presence. 
And then the last one is uh, you you visualize a, 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 a shining black tiglay in the uh, behind the genital area in the secret chakra. And that's for initiating fearlessness, um, basically to, to uh, yeah, because going to sleep from that position is more likely to generate nightmare material. And the idea is you want to work with all kinds of material and you, but you want to do it in a graduated way. You don't want to just jump straight into nightmares, but as you've built up stability, clarity, and strength of presence, then you are enabled to deal with some of the deeper and the heavier and the, the darker uh, material that the psyche might throw up. Well, that's about the hour that we talked about doing. Is there anything else you are burning to add about dreams for us or you feel comfortable wrapping up? I think that's that, that covers a good amount of, of what I wanted to talk about. One of the things I was appreciating, I had forgotten about actually, but I was just looking at my old notes from retreats and things like that. And one of the things I had forgotten about is uh, the qualities that they want to inculcate, you know, in you um, as you prepare for dreaming. Um, and one of them was wrathfulness. And I just liked that, uh, that, you know, typically we're focusing on the calm and the abiding and, and all of that. But there are specific parts of the practice that are designed to generate a kind of fierceness and a wrathness, wrathfulness that's really good at drawing clear boundaries and, and enacting protective circles and, and dealing with, with certain kinds of, of energetic threats and confrontation. So I think that's uh, nice to see that because usually we're in the westernized approach. We usually just have the gentle <laughs> um, affirmative things and we're not really focusing on exercising those qualities. Um, I guess if we went on longer, we can unfold it in more depth. But I guess the last thing I would say about the sleep yoga that differentiates it from the dream yoga, um, that one thing that I just wanted to go into a little bit was that this is this is a practice that you need to do with a partner. You it it works it works by itself to a certain degree. There's a way that you can go to sleep. Usually you would stay awake several nights when you're really going to do an intensive sleep practice. You stay awake several nights um, and then and you do practice throughout all of that time and visualization. And then you approach it as a sacred thing and you will do certain visualizations that help you track the movement into sleep and the shutting down of the body. And definitely that's one of the things that's impressed me most is it really works. You can really... You can really watch as the body shuts down and you can be present with it throughout the whole process and, and, and maintain a continuity. So that was like so cool to experience. And, and it's, it's beautiful to feel that ease, just like sliding, sliding smoothly in to that deep black sea. And but 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 you're experiencing going into that deep black sea. And but one of the things that you need a partner for is that in order to really bring that content home to waking awareness, 
you'll have somebody that will wake you after you've entered deep dreamless sleep and then ask you a set of questions. And, you know, what were you experiencing just now? Or, you know, um, what is clarity? You know, different kinds of questions. And from that place, just emerging right out of it, um, if it's done well and you've prepared yourself, you really do carry that perfume of, of deep dreamless sleep that you're able to report on. Sometimes it doesn't work so well. Uh, you know, I, I was the very first, very first time I tried it and I had been staying up for a couple nights. I put my bed on the floor too close to the door where the sacred guide was supposed to come in. And so I was sleeping and he was trying to open the door and the door kept sticking on my mattress. <laughs> he couldn't get in. And I remember jumping up saying, what the hell? Because <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. And totally blew that moment after all that work. But later we we made it, we made it right. And I went to sleep again. And they actually came in and I was able, this is our first time experimenting with this. I was able to actually report on the experience in a way that was pretty clear. The preparation seems essential. I I comically imagined how awful it would be for most people if just when they were getting into deep sleep, someone shook them awake and asked them to define clarity. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, this has been great. I um, appreciate your attentiveness to this topic and your appreciation for the full range of the affects involved, the richness of your experience and the the nuance and balance with which you hold the interpretations around this whole area. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a, I'm looking forward to this series. I'm, I think we're going to be able to bring in a lot of different angles on it. Uh, I, I don't think this approach is the only one, but in my experience working with it, it's been very rich and comprehensive and, and uh, has been, has been very nourishing. And uh Anybody who's watching, check right now and see if you're in a dream. <laughs> <laughs>